Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. Hey, today we come to uh, the fourth and final installment of the Viewer's Choice Awards series. And during the month of November, we've been revisiting uh, the most viewed messages I've preached at Journey over the last 12 and a half years. Last week, all of us watched the original video version of a message I did on widows and widowers uh, back in 2014 due to me being out with COVID. And um, thank you for your prayers. I'm feeling much better now. Just have a little persistent cough. And about every day, I get a wave of just tiredness that hits me. So if I lay my head down on the table here in a little bit, <laughs> Pastor Dustin will come up and he'll finish up here a little bit. I, uh, I watched it home last week. <laughs> I was moved by my message. Is it, is it okay if I say that? Is, I, I, I don't know if it's okay, but I, I was moved by that. First of all, I was moved because of how much younger I looked. Take a look at that. This was a picture from last week. That, that, that was me in 2014. My, my dear friend and former colleague, Pastor Roddy Connor, texted me this after last week's message. He said, excellent sermon today. Reminds me of my dad saying, that's when I was young and handsome. Now I'm only handsome. <laughs> I was also moved by remembering the story of the two-year-old boy's funeral I did when I was a young 18-year-old pastor in my first church in Claysville, Kentucky. Watching myself retell that, the emotion of being in that moment came back to me, and it hit me, and I was a puddle for a few minutes. My head coach, that's what I call my counselor, my head coach, Dwight, told me early on when I started seeing him, John, you have stuffed so much trauma that you've witnessed over the years so deep inside you that eventually, in one way or another, it has to come out. And I think as I wind down 42 years of leading a local church, it's starting to come out. Another grief counselor used this analogy. That imagine this steam kettle filled with water, setting on a flame, turned up high. Normally, the water it contains heats and boils and the steam generated by that heat releases through the spout. In fact, most kettles are fitted with a whistle to notify us the water's hit the boiling point. But imagine this same steam kettle that's filled with water, that's boiling within, but there's a cork jammed into the spout. Imagine the pressure that builds up inside that kettle when the spout cannot release the built-up energy. The cork, according to this counselor, represents a lifetime of misinformation that causes us to believe that we're not supposed to talk about sad, painful, or negative emotions. And some of us have been taught that that's what it means to be strong. That's what it looks like when you're keeping it together. Does someone ever tell you, don't feel bad? Did it help you? Were you like, thank you so much, I'm completely over it now. I don't know what I would have done if you hadn't told me not to feel bad. 
Or did someone ever say to you, hey, if you're going to cry, go to your room? Basically, they're saying, put a cork in it. Pete Cazero says, what we fail to realize in all this is that a refusal to embrace our sorrows and grieve them fully condemns us and our churches to a shallow spirituality that blocks the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So, to help us feel unashamedly and authentically wrestle with our emotions, or in keeping with the kettle analogy, to help us get the emotional cork out, God gave humanity a great gift. Behold, the prophets of God. Most biblical scholars categorize the Hebrew scriptures with this bifurcated designation, the law and the prophets. Probably because this was Jesus' most common way of referring to the Hebrew scriptures. The law and the prophets testify of me, Jesus said. Now, avid Bible readers have a basic understanding of what the law is about, mostly by pointing at the Ten Commandments, even though in reality there's 613 commandments in the books of law written by Moses. However, most Bible readers have little information or a lot of misinformation when it comes to the prophets. There's probably some understandable reasons for that. For one thing, they seem to be a little cranky. They seem to be the kind of people that got up on the wrong side of the bed every day. I'll give you a few examples. The prophet Amos once said this, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor, crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Did a prophet of God really call the women of Israel cows right there? That's what it sounds like to me. Saying that they're more concerned about where they will get their next drink than they are the poor and the needy? That's kind of a cranky thing to say, don't you think? The prophet Isaiah said this, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Isaiah is basically telling people here that God can't stand their worship gatherings. In fact, he says it'd be better off for them not to assemble at all. That doesn't do much for congregational morale. And the prophet Micah that we're studying today says this in Micah chapter 3. Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. Should you not know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Micah illustrates here, not only do prophets use graphic words, they often resort to shock tactics that look and sound downright bizarre. The prophet Hosea, for example, marries a prostitute to reveal the broken heart of God over his people who've broken his covenant. Imagine a bright seminary student or a young single pastor announcing that he was getting married to a local hooker who was known by everyone in town. Might make it tough to land a job. The prophet Ezekiel once ate food cooked over human excrement to show people how spiritually unclean they have become and to point out how bad the conditions will become for God's people living in Jerusalem if they do not repent. The prophet Jeremiah buries and then digs up a filthy pair of underwear and uses it as an object lesson to show people how repulsive their behavior is to God. And the books of the prophets are filled with page after page of stuff like this, and we don't understand most of it. And what we do understand, we don't like it very much. 
We like happy books. We like hopeful books. We like, and God worked all things together for good stories. So why should we read the books of Hebrew prophecy? Well, for one thing, we do it because they are in the Bible. And you don't want to get to heaven one day and have the prophet Habakkuk walk up to you and say, so how'd you like my book? <laughs> and you say, well, actually, I never read it. It's kind of hard to find, a little whiny and depressing. So I just blew it off. Many people avoid reading the prophets because, and it's understandable, but there is a reason God chose to allow 17 books of the Hebrew Scripture, nearly half of the books in the Old Testament, to be books of the prophets. The prophets hold a mirror up to our soul and show us where we've become marred and scarred and ugly. They tell us things we don't want to hear, and often in ways we don't want to hear them. They convict us of sin. They remind us that there are serious consequences for rebelling against God personally and societally. Pastor Rich Velotis writes these great words. He said, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons we need to read the prophets is because they speak to the public dimension of God's love. Many of us have experienced the personal or private dimension of God's love. In other words, we know what it's like to receive his grace and kindness personally, but the prophets remind us that God's love is not just a private affair. As one American philosopher said, justice is what love looks like in public. And that's the second reason why we need to read the prophets. They help us hear what we would never hear on our own. There are many things that God wants us to see, but our eyes can be blinded by our own personal biases. Most of us tend to look at the world through our own personal filters. That's a very natural thing. I mean, if I feel happy and my needs are met, as the great Louis Armstrong saying, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. When things are going well for us, we can walk right past the things that break the heart of God and not even notice. And we may say, I know there's violence in the world. I read about it sometimes and I feel bad for a minute. But as long as it doesn't touch my life, as long as I'm not dealing with it in my family, as long as it's not in my neighborhood, I'd prefer not to think about it. Cheating goes on every day. You read in the business section, of any media outlet, and you'll see the, about the latest Ponzi scheme, the pilfering of public funds, the piling on of corporate greed, just the way things are. So when we lie a little bit, we comfort ourselves by saying, well, that's what it takes. People in our country live on the streets and go to sleep with empty stomachs, and we learn to walk right past them and look the other way. We even secretly can convince ourselves that it's probably their own fault. They somehow deserve that. So what if in ancient Israel, the poor get ripped off? Where is any different than today? Why go off the deep end about it? Somebody shades the truth a little for profit. Somebody ignores the poor. Somebody gets a little too wrapped up in their own comfort, a little careless about remembering those in need. And the prophets are like the world's falling apart. What's the big deal? I'll tell you what the big deal is. The prophets bear the crushing burden of looking at our world and seeing what God sees and hearing what God hears. Their passion is the natural extension of God's call in their lives. Their seemingly bizarre behavior begins to make sense when we understand the depth of their pain over sin. They give human voice to a divine cry of a God who's heartbroken over the depth of sin in our world and the life-crushing injustices 
that happen every day that go unnoticed in plain sight. The haves have more, and they never had any continue to be shut out. Lies are spoken. No one seems to notice or care. Dishonest business practices have become normative. We look the other way. Systemic governmental injustices are passionately protested but stubbornly persist. Prisoners sit day after day in jail. No one visits. Children go to bed hungry while their neighbors feast and feel no sorrow for the poor around them. And, and people often ask this question, does God see this? How does God feel about this mess? The prophets are God's human voices and vehicles for assuring us that yes, God sees all this. Yes, he feels all this. And he shares it through the words of his prophets. They come to help people see and hear and feel what is on the heart of God. Over and over, people reject them. Sometimes they laugh at them. Other times they mock them. Sometimes they abuse them. Most of the time they ignore them. Micah put it like this. He said, if a liar and a deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. Here's a question. What is wine and beer made to do? Make you feel more comfortable and relaxed or more alert and sharp? And don't act like you don't know. <laughs> I was born last night. I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. What does beer do? Does it make you more alert and sharp or more relaxed and comfortable? In general, alcohol causes people to become more relaxed and less focused. And Micah says, that's what you people really want. People prefer to live in a state of spiritual inebriation, a, a stupor. To quote one of the great students of the prophets from the 20th century, Abraham Heschel, he says, the shallowness of our moral comprehension, the incapacity to sense the depth of misery caused by our own failures is a simple fact of fallen humanity, which no explanation can cover up. Let me ask you, have you ever driven by a hog farm? If you have, you know it. As you get close to the farm, you're hit with a wall of stench that is distinct to this kind of animal. You wonder, how can anybody live close by this? But here's the thing. If you actually stay near the farm for a number of hours, something amazing happens. The smell just goes away, right? <laughs> Not hardly. But you stop noticing it as much. Somehow your mind and your senses make adjustments to your stinky environment. Given enough time in the same proximity, the smell's not nearly as, as, as pungent and intense. Time in erodes awareness of. Sin functions in a similar way. With time, if we stay in close proximity to sinful practices and attitudes, we don't notice the smell. We don't see the consequences. We can't see what the big deal is anyway. That's why we need to read the prophets. To God, our sin is a big deal. Through the prophetic word, he shakes us and he wakes us and he helps us realize something stinks around here. Now, how should we respond to what they say? What should we do? Should we be just paralyzed by the enormity of injustice because it's way more than any one person can fix? Should we sit around doing nothing, just feeling overwhelmed by the guilt over our own failures? Well, the prophet Micah sums up the response God is looking for in one of the greatest verses of the Jewish scriptures and perhaps the entire collection of books of the Bible. It's the only statement I'm going to ask you to remember today. Seriously, if you don't remember anything else I said, remember these words. Because if you grasp this one statement, you grasp the heart of the prophets. This is what Micah tells us in chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? 
and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Micah starts small in our approach to God. A burnt offering could be a dove or a pigeon. Anyone could afford it. Shall I come with calves a year old? A calf was a much more expensive gift. Many families could not afford this kind of offering. This would have been considered a very generous offering to bring to God. Will he be pleased with a thousand rams? This was an offering only a king could give. The wealthiest person in the land might be able to muster up that kind of offering. But it was almost beyond imagination. Will the Lord be pleased with 10,000 rivers of oil? Micah has now escalated the price point of the discussion to the point of being ridiculous, kind of like Taylor Swift concert tickets. <laughs> no person could possibly offer God one river of oil, much less 10,000. Shall I give my firstborn for the sin of my transgression, the firstborn of my body for the sin of my soul? Micah knows human sacrifice is explicitly and repeatedly forbidden by God. He's not advocating human sacrifice in any way, shape, or form. He's simply escalating the discussion and upping the price. But he also knew this was being done in and around Israel. And sometimes even in Israel, when God's people engaged in the practices of their idol-worshiping neighbors. And then Micah writes... One of the most magnificent statements that's ever been uttered in this world. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly before your God. That's one of the greatest statements that's ever been made. And think about what would happen if in the room here in Apopka and in Lake County, or those joining us online from wherever you're watching from, we just committed to those three things. That's what I want you to take with us today. So would you read this sentence? Just read this, read this out loud with me. Let's read it together right now. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly before your God. Three things the prophet Micah says the Lord requires of us. Everybody can do them. Everybody knows what they are. I mean, you can pretend not to know if you want. You can act confused. But he's shown you, oh man. There's no doubt. It's very clear. In fact, God's been quite plain with the human race on these three things throughout the ages. So let's look at each of them quickly in depth. Act justly. <clears throat> Here's what I know. We are all hardwired to care about justice. We are all hardwired to care about justice. This shows up early on in life. One of the phrases kids learn to say very early in life, these three words, that's not fair. That's not fair. And we all carry this sense of fairness and oughtness within us into adulthood, even though we rarely actively pursue it until we are the ones who are not treated fairly. When somebody cuts you off in traffic, when somebody says something to you or about you you don't deserve, when somebody damages you or your property and won't pay up, then we care about justice. Dave Hagler is a former referee and umpire who tells a great personal justice story. It was reported in the Los Angeles Times several years back. This is what he writes. He said, I was driving too fast in the snow in Boulder, Colorado. 
a policeman pulled me over, gave me a speeding ticket. I tried to talk him out of it. Told him how worried I was about my insurance going up. What a good driver I usually am. I haven't had a ticket in years. He said, if I didn't like it, I'd go to court. First game of the next softball season, following spring, Hagler says, I'm umpiring behind home plate. The first batter up to the same policeman. <laughs> I recognized him. He recognizes me. He asked me, how'd the thing go with the ticket? I told him, you better swing at everything. <laughs> we hate it when somebody treats us unfairly at work, in our families, in our neighborhood, in school, in our athletic competitions. We tell stories and we post them on Facebook about incidents like this. We cling to our grudges for a long time and we dream of being in a position to exact revenge. God says, act justly. Get as energized about when somebody else is the victim of injustice as when you are. Have a passion for justice and in particular, have a passion about injustice to those that you and others like you might be inclined to overlook because it's just rampant in our world. I, we can't correct all the injustices in the world, but I can do some things. And here are a few fundamental steps that will move a follower of Christ toward a deeper life of justice. Number one, I, I can notice. I can notice. I've been at airports a lot in the last two weeks. In larger ones, you'll see a picture of a young girl or of a little child that says something like this. Human trafficking is happening in places like this. Look for the signs. Now, I've never seen human trafficking take place at an airport. But just because I haven't seen it doesn't mean it isn't happening. Truthfully, I'm not looking for it. And it's amazing what you don't see when you're not looking. When it comes to injustice, the American church does not have a how-to problem as much as it has a want-to problem. And want-to problems are only solved when we have the humility to ask ourselves some basic but probing questions like these posed by Pastor Albert Tate. What do I not know? What do I not see? And am I humble enough to ask the questions to find out the answers? You see... Before we can make it better, we need to ask, how can I be better? Secondly, I can pray. I can do more than pray, but nothing meaningful or lasting happens until and unless I pray. There's amazing power in prayer when Christians begin praying for justice and against injustice. God begins to act in surprising and compelling ways. This is literally the story of the civil rights movement in America. People gathered in churches to pray before they hit the streets to protest. Prayer can infuse us with, in the words of the Old Testament theologian Walter Brugeman, a prophetic imagination. Thirdly, I can change my behavior even if it cost me. In his book titled Generous Justice, Tim Keller writes about a Christian man he knows that owns a chain of car dealerships. As is standard practice in the auto industry, his sales force were authorized to negotiate the price with the car of the car with their customers. At one point, however, the CEO did some research and he uncovered the fact that in general, men were more persistent negotiators than women and Caucasian males negotiated with much more tenacity than people of color. In other words, black women who were often poor 
were paying more for their cars than more prosperous customers. The owner realized that this standard automotive business practice took advantage of a class of people that needed help and protection most. The policy was not illegal. Few people would have considered it immoral, but it ended up being exploitative, so the company changed the policy to one of no negotiation. The listed price is the price. This occurred, by the way, well before this sales strategy became widely accepted in the auto industry. This Christian businessman was considering the poor and seeking to integrate the doing of justice into all aspects of private and public life. Tim Keller said he once asked him, is this good business on your part? And the man replied, there may be some future benefits for the company, but they would be minor and unquantifiable, and it didn't really matter. He made the changes because the practice was taking economic advantage of people with fewer resources, in his opinion. Keller writes, most ethics courses in business school provide many case studies in which business owners and employees are urged to do the honest and just thing. But what motivation is given? Here's a typical answer. Businesses can often attain short-term gain by acting in an unethical fashion. However, such behaviors tend to undermine the economy over time. The argument basically is this. Be ethical and you'll gain long-term advantage for yourself and your business. But listen, the Bible says the righteous disadvantage themselves to the advantage of others while the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. In this case, the Christian business owner was willing to permanently disadvantage his business, even if it meant doing justice. I can use my voice. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, a time comes when silence is betrayal. A voice is one of the most powerful catalysts for justice. Whether our voices are raised through visual art, poetry, preaching, blogging, tweeting, community organizing, protesting, marching, or some other form of resistance, justice requires our voices. And at the same time, how we raise our voices matters. And lastly, I can stay near the hurting and the vulnerable. I think it's important to point out that Jesus lived three decades before he began a public ministry. We often overlook that fact. It seems that he prayerfully and patiently took the time to understand the spiritual and social landscape that surrounded him. He preached and prophesied as one who was informed. He recognized idolatry. He could name the oppression. He truly saw people who were treated unjustly by people in power. You see, more than stopping by for a photo op and a short press conference after a tragedy, Jesus moved into the neighborhood. The work of deeply formed justice requires a willingness to stay present well after the adrenaline-flowing outrage has passed. Friends, listen. We can't fix everything. The truth is we can't fix most things. But we can, by God's grace and the Spirit's empowerment, notice the needs of those around us. Pray boldly for things to change. We can change our own behavior to reflect the reign of God's kingdom values in our life, even if it costs us. We can lift our voice on behalf of the vulnerable. We can stay near the hurting as we do our part to bear witness to the just and compassionate heart of God. That's what it means to act justly, not just talk justly. Then God says, love mercy. The Hebrew word Micah uses a very rich word. Hased is the word. It's used mostly in the Old Testament. It's most closely associated with God's loving kindness that flows out and is expressed in covenant relationship, which is at the heart of how God chooses to relate to people through covenant. 
It's a love that always seeks to express itself in action. It's never confined to just feeling. In a town called Paradise, California, a young man named John Gilburn grew up. When John was five years old, he was diagnosed with Duquesne's muscular dystrophy. It is a genetic, progressive, and cruel disease. He was told it would eventually destroy his muscle in 10 more years or so. It would take his life eventually. Every year, John lost something. One year, he lost his ability to run. He couldn't play sports with the other kids. Another year, he could no longer walk straight. All he could do was watch others play. So he began writing a journal about his life. And he writes that junior high was perhaps the hardest era of his life. Now, you know and I know, junior high is difficult for almost everybody. But when you have a disability, it can be even harder. John was bullied there. He was humiliated until he was afraid to go to school. Nobody stood up for him, maybe because they were afraid of possible repercussions. But he writes there were better moments in his life. One year when he was a kid, he was named the poster child for the Muscular Dystrophy Association in the state of California. And he flew to Sacramento and was ushered with his mom into the governor's office for a private meeting. The governor had a big glass jar of candy sitting on his desk. He told John to dig in. John looked at his mom. Mom said, it's okay to take one piece. But the governor said he was the governor and John should do what he said. So he stuffed his pockets with candy. (laughs) Then that night, the NFL sponsored a fundraising auction dinner, which John was a guest of honor. The players, NFL players, let him hold their huge Super Bowl rings, which swallowed up his slender fingers. When the auction began, one item especially caught John's attention. It was a basketball signed by all the members of the Sacramento Kings of the NBA. John got caught up in the moment because when the ball went up for bidding, he raised his hand. And as soon as it went up, his mom flagged it down. John said, astronauts never felt as many G's as my wrist did that night. (laughs) The bidding for that basketball went on and kept going up to an astronomical amount, more than anything else, even though it was not a particularly valuable item in that auction because it was, after all, signed by the Sacramento Kings. And eventually, one guy named a figure that stunned the room. Nobody else could match. He went to the front to collect this wonderful prize that he was willing to pay so much for. But instead of returning to his seat, the man walked across the room and he placed the basketball in the thin, small hands of a boy in a wheelchair who had admired it so intently and wanted it so badly. He put the ball in the hands that would never dribble it down a court, that would never throw it to a teammate on a fast break, that would never fire it from three-point range. Have you bought a basketball for anybody lately? Have you gone out of your way to serve somebody for no reason at all? That's how we love mercy. And then Micah says, walk humbly with your God. I think this phrase probably had a special meaning to Micah because I think it's hard to be a prophet and not get all self-righteous about it. Has anybody ever seen anyone in a church who actually enjoys going around correcting other people? Don't raise your hand. Don't point. If the person's in a room with you right now, blink twice. Okay, see that? 
There is a kind of person who loves to pass judgment in a spirit of arrogant superiority. And they then cover it up by saying, well, you know, I'm a prophet. I'm a prophetess. I just have the gift of telling it like it is. You ever seen that? Can I tell you there's a very nuanced but important theological distinction between being a prophet and being a jerk? Because what burns most deeply in the heart of a true prophet is not anger and arrogance. It's love and humility. A true prophet remembers that she or he too is one of the sinful people who've helped to mess up this marvelous world that God made for us. And when you realize that you may be part of the problem, you walk humbly before the Lord your God. Peter writes, as many New Testament scriptures, Peter writes this, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. James says, but he gives us more grace. This is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God, he'll come near you. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He will lift you up. Paul exhorts the Ephesian Christians, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. God is attracted to humility. He's repelled by pride. So the message is clear. Be humble or you will stumble. Be humble or you will stumble. Some time ago, I read about the experience of a wealthy older woman who never married. She had no children. So she had no biological heirs. She only had one close blood relative, a nephew, who hoped to inherit all of her money. He'd always been gracious and attentive in her presence, but she'd learned from others that he had some behavior that might make her doubt her impression of him. The disposal of her wealth was no small matter to her. She had to be sure that the person who received it would use it wisely and generously. So she decided to take matters into her own hands. One morning, she dressed in tattered clothes. She appeared as a homeless person, and she laid on the steps of his urban townhouse. When he came out, he cursed at her. He told her to leave, or he'd call the police immediately. And so she knew what his heart was really like. His response to the poor woman revealed his true nature. Pastor Dustin Agard has recently talked with us about his Matthew 25 challenge based on Jesus' words that say this. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will, pry, will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Friends, the God of the Bible revealed in Jesus steps into our world and says, I am the thirsty. I am the stranger, the naked, the sick, the prisoner on your step. Your attitude toward them 
reveals what your true attitude is toward me. A life devoted to doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly before God is the inevitable sign of any real, true gospel faith in Christ. And when that happens, when people act justly and love kindness and walk humbly before the Lord our God, Micah says in the closing words of his powerful book, nations will see, not just one nation, not just the tiny nation of Israel, all nations will see and be ashamed and they will come trembling out of their dens and turn in fear to the Lord our God. For who is a God like you who pardons sin, forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And we have to ask, what does this treading our sins underfoot and hurling our iniquities into the sea kind of compassion look like? And how will we know when it happens? And Micah also gives us the answer to that question in his book. And it's an answer that will lead us into our Christmas series starting next week. Micah says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Micah tells us that God will give us a ruler who always acts justly, who perfectly personifies the love of mercy, who walked humbly before the Lord his God from a little town in Bethlehem to the synagogues and villages of Galilee, to the halls of power in Jerusalem, all the way to his death on a cross. And as followers of Jesus, we never have to ask, Lord, when did we see you thirsty or naked or a stranger or a prisoner? Because the answer is on the cross. That's the ruler God gave us for a world of injustice. And that is how he reigns in this unjust, unloving, uncivil world by demonstrating that the power of love is always greater and always triumphs over the love of power. Let's stand together. <clears throat> Father, thank you <clears throat> that you call us as your people and you have shown us, oh man, oh woman, what does the Lord require of you? But more than you have told us, you have given us a ruler in Jesus who acted justly every time in every situation, who personified the love of mercy, giving us not what our sins deserve, taking them away from us by humbly walking before you all the way to a cross. Thank you, Father. That is the ruler you've given this world. I pray, Father, that we would come humbly under him even this day. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible.